Well, good morning. It's good to see you as the ushers are coming forward. We'll just say a couple quick things. One, if you are new with us, just this is our habit as a to collect the offering as a way to remind ourselves that all we have belongs to the Lord and we want to give back from what he's given to us. So just want you to let those offering plates just pass by. We hope that this service is a gift to you. And I did want to say this. Oh yeah, if you are... Uh, you know, you didn't bring cash with you or uh, a check with you. You can text to give. We do want you to know about that, particularly students, because I know that you guys tend to function electronically. So that is another way to give. But here's what's been on my heart this week. Uh, as your pastor, I was thinking about this. I want to make sure that for those of you who come all the time, you're here regularly and, you know, you're giving. And one, I've, I've, I'm always so thankful for the generosity of this church. As people, you, I think God has taken hold of your hearts and you give to gospel causes and purposes. And I love that about you. But my concern sometimes is that you, you just, as we're all want to do sometimes, that you just give out of a sense of duty uh, because it's what you know you're supposed to do. And I want to remind us, it probably is helpful to remind us that we give and the reason we give is as an act of worship. I mean, we could take the passing of the plates out of the service. We don't actually really need to do that week to week, uh, but we do it. We keep it in the service because we think it's important to remind ourselves that, that part of our worship of God is that we do give of our gifts to him. And so I just wanted to remind you of that. I mean, our hope is that you would never, ever just give out of a sense of, of duty. That God doesn't need your money in that sense, right? But that you would give as an act of worship, right? That you would give as people whose hearts have been grabbed by that 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 truth, like that you knowing the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that you know the grace of Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich, Right? Not, not monetarily wealthy, but rich in what matters, rich in the truth, rich in relationship with God, that Christ has been crucified and resurrected to make us rich in that sense, and that we give as a response to that. That's gospel giving. That's the kind of giving that actually is worship. That's the kind of giving that actually changes us and shapes our hearts and makes us who God wants us to be. So my hope is just as a reminder, because sometimes we just... We get into habits around here, yes, would you say? We just get into habits, okay, the plate's coming, I'm gonna give. That's, that's a good thing to do, but we always want you to be reminded, not just to give in that way, but to give uh, with that sort of, that space in your heart filled up with the knowledge that God has made you rich in Christ Jesus. And you give us a response to that. That's valuable, that's valuable. So we're gonna be uh, in Colossians. So um, let's pray together, and then we're gonna continue our journey in the book of Colossians. But let's pray first. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true and right and good. We pray that you would capture our hearts with it today. Your word today is gonna tell us, Lord, that we would set our mind on the things above. And so we pray that you'd help us to do that today. That's not a task we can just accomplish on our own, but we need your spirit to come and to show us how to do that. How do we set our minds on the things above? And so we pray that you would do it today. Thank you for the privilege meditating upon your revealed truth through your word. Lord, would you make my mouth and my mind useful to you now, that it would bring you glory and honor, help me to say what is true and right and good and helpful. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, like I said, if you've got a Bible, open with me to Colossians chapter 3. Just four verses today that we're going to look at, and uh, I'll just remind you by way of 
kind of recap that if you have been with us in the previous weeks, you remember, hopefully, that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul gave us what is essentially the theme for the middle of the entire book of Colossians. So he really began the book with these amazing uh, statements of thanksgiving and worship of who Christ is and this beautiful picture of that. But then in chapter 2, verse 6, he gave us what is essentially the theme that is now we're kind of fleshing out in the sections of the book that we're in, which is this. As you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Do you remember that phrase, right? So walk in him. So the idea essentially of everything that we're looking at in the middle of the book is what does it mean to, to walk with Jesus? What does it mean to live your life for him? Uh, that that's Paul's ambition. That he would say, I want you to do that. I want you to spend every day, every hour, every minute giving yourselves to Jesus, that your job is to walk with him. So I want to show you how to do that. And then so the last couple of weeks, what we saw is the first thing he did was he spent some time teaching us, like, how do you reject false ideas about who I am as God? How do you put those away and believe what is true? And he started by showing us the beauty of the work of Jesus. And I thought that was really fantastically brilliant, that he doesn't begin by saying, here's how you identify false things about teachings that you're going to hear, and you reject those false things. He begins by telling us, let me start by telling you what is true about Jesus. Let me start by telling you what is true about his work and what he's done. Focus on that first and foremost, and as you see what is true, you will see what is false in light of it. Does that make sense? Let me begin with that, right? And that's what he said first. And then last week, Nate did a great job of unpacking for us what he said next was to say, okay, the church in Colossians, uh, the church in Colossae had a specific kind of false teaching that was coming to it. And he was pointing out some things about that false teaching saying, look, it, it's overly prone to want you to have emotional experiences. It's overly prone to be legalistic and to say, you must do this and you must do that and to kind of press into dead rituals. It, and, and what's interesting is that we saw, I think, that a lot of those things that marked the false teaching thousands of years ago in the church at Colossae still mark false teaching today that they are still things that you would look and go, oh, those are things that are not true about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And so we saw that, right? So first we look at Jesus, what he's done. Then we begin to identify certain things that seem to be true often about false truths, about false ideas. And so he began there. Now what he's going to do is he's going to transition us a little bit, having helped us say, if you're going to walk in Jesus, if you're going to walk with him, then you're going to need to know what is true and what's not true. You're going to reject, need to reject false ideas. And then he's going to transition this week to talking about essentially change. How does change happen in a human life? Have you asked that question before? You probably asked it in your own life. Like, how do I change? How does change occur? You've probably had something you, know, you wished would change, and maybe it's not changing. Or perhaps you've had a friend or a family member who is wrestling to see something change in, your, in their life, and maybe you've prayed long hours for them. You know, maybe you've even given your advice when it was not wanted, right, uh, about how to change and how change should come. And the interesting thing about it is, as Paul addresses the subject, what we're going to find is that there are a couple of ideas he's going to tell us about change. And, and what we're going to find is he's going to offer us this idea of our union with Christ is the key to how we actually change as followers of Jesus. Now let me back up before we go down that road and just say for a minute, if you've spent time considering this change, this idea of how does a person actually change, if you've spent time considering that, you've probably noticed a few things. One uh, is that if religious people tend to answer that question according to the will, that we need to work on the will, right? So that we need to get uh, better and stronger at being more convicted about things and we just need to exert our will more forcefully and then we will change. That's the typical religious answer to how can I change is, well, you need to exercise your will more forcefully. 
right? That, and that's, you know, that's why you find in religious circles often that the, the prescription for how someone changes often revolves around uh, making people feel guilty, making people feel shame. Uh, those are pretty typical strategies for how to bring about change. But because it's believed, the religious person believes that the key to change is working on the will, that's not true. The second thing that you find in non-religious environments, typically when it comes to change, is it usually revolves around working on the emotions. So that if the, if the religious person tends to work on the will and say, I'm going to make you maybe, perhaps, feel bad enough so that you would work on the will and exercise the strength of your will so that you can change, I'm going to try harder, the non-religious person often says, I just need to feel better about myself. I need to figure out a way to not feel bad about who I am or what I've done. And if I can feel that and find that, then I'll typically feel better. And so we work on the emotions. And so we press into things like cognitive therapy and we work on different ideas about how to be sort of self-affirming. And those are all, again, not helpful ways when it comes to change. The gospel gives a different answer to the question, how does a person change? The gospel answer to how a person changes is change your object of worship and you will change. Change what you worship and you will change. And the gospel offers us a true and better center of our worship. Probably no surprise we're going to offer that as the person Jesus, yes? That he, when he comes and and puts himself on the throne of your heart, he expels idols. He pushes them out and removes them. And that's what begins to change us. And that's what Paul's going to get at in this text. He's going to say, I want you to understand that if you want to walk in Jesus, right? Chapter 2, verse 6. If you want to walk in him... That would imply that you need to change. If that's going to happen, if that change in order to walk in him is going to happen, then what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to understand your union with Jesus. What it means that you have union with Christ and you're going to set your mind on that. I'm I'm going to tell you about that so that the object of your worship would be him and not something else. And as the object of your worship changes, your behaviors change. See, as a church, we're not really interested in just changing behaviors. Would you agree with that? We're not just interested in getting you to toe the line of certain behaviors, right? And to do certain things and to show up in certain places and to act in a certain way. What we're interested in is your heart being captured by the gospel and the beauty of Jesus and him enthroning himself on your hearts so that then downstream from that, everything else changes. I was thinking about that this week as I was reading this text preparing. I was thinking about the way I parent. I was thinking about that with my kids, you know, and how often I'm focused on uh, the strategies I need to put in place for correcting my kids when their behavior is not what I want it to be. And it's not wrong to discipline my kids. It's actually right to do it. The scriptures command me to do it. I need to do it. But I was, I was thinking about, well, how often do I think more about how to give a corrective to my kid when they do something wrong rather than think in advance of any corrective being needed, how do I help Jesus be enthroned on their heart? How do I help them to love him first and most? How do I paint a picture of him that is so beautiful and so glorious and of the union that they have with him Right? If they are in him, that they would, they would simply find that it is their chief desire and they know it's their great end to follow and to worship him. How do I help him be enthroned on their hearts is the question I want to be asking as a parent. And I find that far too often I'm asking the question about how to give a correction more than I'm asking how to help that take place. So today what we're going to find is that Paul is going to say to us, I want you to understand your union with Christ. And the reason I want you to understand it is because I want him to be the object of your worship. And when he is, you'll find that you change. Worship is the key to change. I mean, have you ever thought about this? 
when it comes to worship. One of the reasons that uh, it's not simply enough to sit in your home. You got up, you, got, you went to great effort today to get up, get showered, hopefully, right? Get dressed, show up here, right? You drove in the car, you got here. If you had other people that you were bringing in tow with you, you had to make sure that they were ready on time. You had to work to make sure you could, you know, there's gas in the car. You could remember the way to the church. You got here, you parked, you had to deal with the crowd. You got in, hopefully maybe you got a cup of coffee on your way in, right? And you got here. And then what was the first thing we did when you got here? We sang together. Why did we, that's weird, Right? If you know, do you have any other groups of people other than a choir that maybe you belong to that when you show up, the first thing that you do with that group of people, and there's like a thousand of you in here right now, is that you sing together. That's a weird thing. Why do we do that? Because worship changes our hearts. It transforms us. It helps Jesus be enthroned on our hearts because we turn our gaze to him and there's something about music, there's something about singing that has been given to us by God that causes us to see him in a way that if I just stood here and repeated the lyrics to the song to you that we just sang, it would not nearly enthrone Jesus on your heart the way it does when we put melody to it and we declare it together, not alone. It's not enough to just worship God in your bedroom alone. That's good, but we gather together, together, and we strengthen one another in declaring the truth of God, in singing together, because worship is how gospel transformation takes place. Worship is how gospel transformation takes place. Not guilt trips, not shaming, not efforts of the will, not emotional you know, new categories to think in or feeling better about myself. Worship. Worship is how transformation takes place. So what we're gonna find today is that Paul's gonna give us four things about our union with Christ that are meant to help enthrone him on our hearts so that we would then worship him and walk in him. Walk in him. Okay, so let's look at those four things together. Let's read first though. Colossians chapter three, verse one through four says this. If then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You also will appear with him in glory. So as I said, four things here that, that about our union with Christ if we are in him. And if you are not in him, my encouragement is listen in. Treat this, uh, treat this as something where you can kind of just get a little, a little thought on what Christians think about who they are in Christ and what they have in him. See if it doesn't compel you. We, we ultimately believe we don't need to. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a follower of him, we don't believe we need to manipulate you to get you to believe. We just think you need to see him. That's what it boils down to for us. Yeah, it's probably something you need to understand about Christians is that we just think if you see Jesus clearly, you cannot deny him. He's that good. So here's the first thing we see about our union with Christ. The first thing we see is that our union with Christ means a new identity. Our union with Christ means a new identity. Now we've touched on this a lot. We touched on it even a couple weeks ago, but Paul keeps repeating it, so we'll keep repeating it. He keeps coming to it over and over again. And it's found in this key idea that we find here, we found it in chapter two, and by the way, we find it in every one of Paul's letters. 
Paul's letters. We find it in his letter to the Romans. We find it to the Ephesians. We find it to the Colossians. Again and again, the Corinthians, when he says, you have been raised with Christ and you have died with Christ. Did you see that in the text? Verse one, look again, where he says, if then you have been raised with Christ. Now he starts with the good part, right? If then you have been raised with Christ. But down in verse three, he says, for... Right, And the reason you set your minds on things above is because, for you have died with him. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So there we have again what we found in chapter 2, what we've seen in all Paul's other letters, is that he says, you have died and you have been raised. And what does he mean when he gets at that? What he means is you are no longer the same person you were before you came to Christ. You are now something completely new. And as I said... I know we've said that a number of times, but friends, you need to understand that this is the, the most basic bottom line understanding of the gospel that has to be in you. And if it were, you would find that you would have victory over sin in your life much more than you do. One of the reasons that you do not have victory over sin and you keep repeating it over and over, the reason you and I do not walk in him as Colossians chapter two commands us is because we have failed to believe and grasp and set our minds on the reality that we have a new identity in Christ. Our union with him is so complete It is so full that we understand that when the scriptures say he died, we understand that we also died. And in his resurrection, we were raised. That is not a trick of the mind. Listen, I am not trying to trick your mind to get you to believe something about yourself, just to affirm yourself. Oh, I'm something different. Yay. To get you to affirm that so then you'll act and behave differently. This is quite literally the fabric of your very being has been changed spiritually. You are not what you were if you are in Christ Jesus. And if you will believe that and integrate that into your life and set your mind and heart upon it, it will transform you because you will be astounded and amazed that one like me could be changed to be one like him could be made to be something completely new and different. When he died, you died. Stop believing that the gospel is simply mental affirmation of some facts that happened historically about Jesus' death and resurrection. They are not. When the scriptures say, believe in him, they are saying, put the full weight of your trust and love upon him. Put everything on him. He now owns you. When he died, you died. And sin no longer has mastery over you because of it. And when he was raised, you were raised. Listen to how he says it in Romans. Whenever Paul talks about this idea of you died, what he means is you have died to the power of sin and the power of Satan over you. He can no longer, look, you Spend too much time acting as if the sin that you repeat over and over is just something you can't possibly beat because it's too strong and you give it too much credit. Because if you are in Christ, it does not have victory over you. It does not own you. You have died. Listen to Romans 6. Romans 6 verse 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the response? By no means. How can we who died to sin, do you catch that? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know 
that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If you want to change, you have to understand this new identity that you have because of your union with Christ. Let me illustrate that point for you, right? Some of you may remember the story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. It's a story that Jesus told, and if you're not familiar with it, let me just kind of fill you in on how the story goes. There's a son who comes to his father, and he says, essentially, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance from you. I wish you were dead so much that I'm willing to take less money now rather than to wait to get my full inheritance when you die. So give me what you owe me now. The father, brokenhearted, gives his son the money. The son leaves, goes off to a far land and spends the money on parties and making friends who are not truly friends because they abandon them the second there, aren't any, there isn't any money around. He eventually ends up so isolated, so lonely, so broken down that he finds a job in a pigsty and he's so hungry that he eats the food the pigs are eating. This is a picture of absolute destruction of a life. Finally, the son comes to himself one day and he says, you know what, even the servants in my dad's house are treated better than how I'm treated right now. They're living a better life than I'm living. So he makes a plan to go back to his father in a transactional sort of a way, right? I will go back to my dad and I will say, I'm not worthy to be your son, but please receive me back as a servant. If you'll just take me in as a servant and let me serve you in your house, then I'll have food to eat. Then I'll have a warm bed to sleep in. Then I'll have a place to belong. Please, just take me back. So he, you know, he heads off on the long journey to go back home. And the whole way he's rehearsing, we would imagine, just rehearsing, rehearsing his little speech. And he shows up. And here's the amazing thing. The father has not just been in the house uh, off to himself just going, I've, I've forsaken my son. Every day he's out looking to the horizon and he sees the sun and it's completely undignified for a father in the ancient Near East to ever run. But what does he do? He picks up his robe and he sprints to his son when he sees him on the horizon. Doesn't wait another second. Sees him coming home and cannot wait. Now here's the crux of the story. When he arrives at his son, the son begins his rehearsed speech. Let me have a transactional relationship with you, Father. Let me be your servant. Father cuts him off midstream, says, kill the fattened calf, we're having a feast. Bring me the robe, put it on my son. It's the family robe. Bring the family ring with the signet crest and put it on his finger because my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. Why does the father do this? Why? Is it because he says, well, you know, I'm going to trick him and then I'm going to bring him to the house and then I'm going to make him serve me and I'm going to show him what he's, he's good for nothing, son. And then eventually when he's earned it after a little while, then maybe I'll let him back into my good graces. Is that what he does? No. What he does and why he does it, what he does is to place the family emblems on the son to say, you never stop being my son. I know who you are. You belong to me. And what changes the son's heart? Is it an act of the will? Is it an emotional experience? Is it self-discipline? Is it self-affirmation? What changes him is when he understands who he is. I'm the son of the father. And my place is in this home. And I will never again run away. See, Jesus tells that story because he wants us to understand that if you want to change, you need to know who you are. You need to know who you are. 
This is the most important truth in all of Scripture if you want to be transformed from what you are into what you are becoming and what he will make you is you need to know that in his death you died and in his resurrection, my friend, you rose to newness of life. Second thing we find about the union that we have with Jesus in the scripture, in this passage, is that union with Christ means ability to see a new reality. Union with Christ means ability to see a new reality. So look again at verse one. After saying you've been raised with Christ, then he says, seek the things that are above, which is kind of a general, like, bend your life in the direction of looking up to the heavens and seeing what is going on there. Seek the things that are above, orient your heart towards it, orient your mind towards it. And then he's gonna describe in greater detail now when he says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now we'll return to that phrase. But then look verse two, he says, set your minds, now he gets a little more specific, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So what we find there is these two commands, right? These are not suggestions. These are commands. They're what we call imperatives. So I want you to seek the things that are above. I want you to set your minds on the things that are above. And as I said, he's generally saying, I want you to orient your life in such a way that you bend your thinking around and you bend your heart around the things that are taking place in the heavens. He's actually telling us to look up and see what's taking place in the heavens. Uh, I was listening to Sinclair Ferguson, another pastor preacher, preach on this text as I was preparing this week. And he said something that when I heard it, it just convicted me to the heart. When he said it, he said, I ask a question of anyone I interview to work on my team. And that question is this, what do you think about when you have nothing you have to think about? What do you think about when you have nothing that you have to think about? And I just went, is the Cowboys the wrong answer? Is that not... Is that not what that's supposed to be? Yeah, yeah, I got a yes. Well, the Eagles are also the wrong answer, okay? So are the Steelers. I'm just kidding. It just convicted. I thought, oh, yes. What do I think about when I have nothing else to think about? Set your mind on things above. Now, here's what he's saying, right? We can presume that if this is a command that he gives us, that there's also an ability to do this. This is not a nice idea where he says, set your mind on things above and you go, well, that, that's nice. What does that mean? Like, how am I supposed to see into the heavens? Like, what, what does that look like, right? Well, the, the answer is we are actually able to see a new reality. Because of our union with Christ, we can see something that before we were in union with him, we could not see. And that is we can see the reality of the rule and reign of Christ in the heavens that will ultimately become a reality here on earth one day in all its fullness. We can see that that is a reality and we can live in light of that reality. And before we had union with him, that was not something we could see. It was not something we could behold. But now because of him, because of what he has done, I can actually obey this command and I can set my mind to seek the things above. I can set my heart to seek the things above. I can turn my attention and my affections in that direction. And when I gaze upon that reality, it changes my perception of everything around me because it reminds me there is a new 
unseen reality that because of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that is taking place in this world, we are literally an army of people set aside for the purposes of God that can see and behold the reality of his rule and reign which will come to pass. Think about that. What if you spent every day setting your mind on the things above and understanding the reality of his rule and reign through the cross? And then everything else was downstream from that. And you started to go, yes, he rules and he reigns. He sits at the right hand of the Father, right? My life is hidden with Christ in God. And when he appears, I will also appear with him. What does that mean? What's that gonna look like? How's that gonna come to pass? And just be astonished by that. We can see and behold a new reality. I'll give you um, an illustration of what I mean. Uh, Years ago, maybe like 2005, the New York Times uh, movie reviewer, I don't remember who it was at the time, wrote an article about a certain type of movie. Uh, You guys seen Groundhog Day with Bill Murray? Right, Uh, Groundhog Day, he also said, it's a wonderful life, which is coming for us, right, in December. We will see it a lot. Right, so if you've seen A Wonderful Life, It's a Wonderful Life. He categorized these two types of movies as what he called, and this is a weird phrase, for it, he called them metaphysical second chance comedies. Metaphysical second chance comedies. And here's how he described why he termed them that way. Listen to this. So he listed them as metaphysical second chance comedies. And he said about these that they are the kind of movie in which the laws of time and space are bent to give characters access to self-knowledge unavailable in ordinary circumstances. In other words, what he's saying is something takes place. Like in Groundhog Day, Bill Murray just keeps reliving the same day over and over. And so he has understanding of a new reality that no one else around him sees or understands, right? Same thing in It's a Wonderful Life, right? Uh, Jimmy Stewart is, you know, gets the visit, visit from the angel and then he's seeing a whole alternate reality of his life that no one else knows about or sees and what does it do? His access to that different reality changes the way he lives when he comes back into, at the end of the movie, yes, you remember this? He comes back into his actual reality or the, the life he's living, right? And the, the idea I thought was so profound because as I read that, as I saw that, I thought, yes, that's exactly right. What we have in Jesus is access to understand and to see a new reality. And when we see it, it changes us. That's exactly what happens in these. So we live a metaphysical second chance, hopefully not a comedy. Right? We live in this space where we have access to see a new reality that before we were in Christ, we could not see or understand. And now because we see it and we behold it and we can look to it, We are changed and transformed by it because we understand things that we did not priorly understand. Now, the third thing that we see about our union with Christ is that our union with Christ means favor with God or perhaps another way to say it is we experience the pleasure of God, that he is pleased with us. Let me show you what I mean. Again, in verse one, I told you I was gonna come back to this phrase. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, And then he includes this this little phrase at the end, seated at the right hand of God. Now that's a very important phrase and his use of it here is very strategic and very important. Because whenever we see that phrase in the scriptures, when someone is at the right hand of someone else, like when a son sits at the right hand of his father, it's an indicator that the father is well pleased with the son. That you come sit at my right hand, it's the place of favor, it's the place of pleasure, and it's the place of privilege. 
So the idea here is this picture that Paul is painting, and he's saying the son was sent by the father on a great mission. And he went on that mission, and he performed it perfectly with great courage and great fidelity and great winsomeness. And and he did everything just as he should do it. And now, having accomplished that mission, he's come back home to his father in the ascension, and the father said, well done. Come and sit at my right hand. This is the place of privilege, the place of honor, the place of pleasure. I delight in you, son. That's the picture that we're getting when it says he is seated at the right hand of God. But look at what else it says right after that. So, so we understand, right? That he's saying God is well pleased with Jesus. To which we'd probably all say, amen, absolutely. As it should be, right? But then he says down in verse 3, For you have died with Christ, and your life, what? Is hidden with Christ in God. If my life, my true self, like who I'm actually going to be, the one that, who God sees me as, if that's hidden with Christ in God, and God is seated at the right hand of the Father, then where am I seated? At the right hand of the Father, in the place of privilege and pleasure and favor. And you might think, well, no, 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 no. Like, Jesus is the one that gets the privilege and the pleasure and the favor. Well, look with me at Ephesians chapter one. Because if you think it's too grand, it's too much, it's not. Ephesians chapter one, same idea, verse 20. Actually, I'll pick up middle of verse 19, right? He says this, uh, beginning verse 19, he says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. All right, so do you see it? That's the place of privilege and pleasure. Yes, church? That's what he's saying. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father because of his work, perfectly privileged and full of God's pleasure. Now look down to chapter two, verse six. Look at the middle of verse five, actually. Start there. It says, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and what? Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you see what he's saying? If Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that's an indication of the pleasure of the Father and the Son, but then he says your union with him is so complete, it's so rich, it's so full, that you are also seated with him at the right hand of the Father in the place of pleasure, in the place of favor, in the place of privilege. The astonishing truth of our union with Jesus is that the pleasure the Father feels for Jesus, he feels for us. If you are in Christ, he looks at you and he adores you as he adores his son. Now, if that doesn't cause your heart to melt, I don't know what will. That's absolutely astounding. It's very easy for me to comprehend why Jesus would be so well pleased with, why God would be so well pleased with Jesus. That's pretty easy, right? But then to see that the scriptures tell me that because, not not by my own merit, Not because I am somehow worthy of this place of privilege and pleasure, but to see that the scriptures tell me that I am indeed seated at the right hand of the Father with the Son, that my life is hidden with Christ in God. You wanna get Jesus on the throne of your heart, that's how it begins to happen. You understand your identity in him. You understand that through your union, you are not what you were. 
You understand that through your union with him, you have been caused to become pleasing. That the the favor of the Father is poured out upon you because of it. It's absolutely amazing. Look, this is, I'll show you what I mean about how does this change us, right? When I was uh, in college, I worked one summer at at a summer camp. It was a Christian sports summer camp. And, and when I got there, just pretty quickly, I mean, there were a number of like division one college athletes at the camp and they're just, you know, bigger, stronger, faster than me. And I just felt like the runt of the litter, right? I mean, I just felt like the guy who did not belong at the camp. And then my first cabin was a really rough cabin. I mean, it was like, like people who had been at the camp for years were like, we have not seen a cabin like this. This is, these, these kids are not, not well behaved. So, I mean, I'm running myself ragged for a month looking after these kids, and I'm just, I'm just thinking to myself, I am bad at this. I am just not good at this. And I just really started to feel pretty down about it. And then I thought, you know, I'm going to persevere. And then I started getting these assignments, and they just seemed like the worst assignments at camp. And I thought, yep, there it is. It's completely confirmed. I am not good. They're like, I wish we didn't hire this guy. Because they're just giving me the, just the cruddiest assignments, it just seemed like, over and over again. And I was like... Okay, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll teach that. Yes, I'll do sailing. Oh my gosh, this is the worst elective to teach ever. It's like, I just want to teach archery, please. Nope, go sail. Okay, can't even get the sunfish back to shore on time, right? And I just kept getting these bad, and I just thought, so, and I was really, I was really discouraged. At the end of the summer, right, at the end of the summer, I had no idea, I'd never worked there before. At the end of the summer, uh, one of the heads of camp came to me and he handed me a bonus check. And I, and you don't make a lot of money working at a camp. So this is like, this is like gold, man. It was awesome. I was like, what? He's like, we've been watching you. We've been very appreciative of your faithfulness. We've given you a lot of hard assignments and it's because we trusted you and we took a lot of pleasure in how well you were doing what you were doing. I was like, I could have used that encouragement a month ago. (laughs) But it changed everything for me. I went from thinking I was like, absolutely didn't belong there and that I was just trudging through and, you know, like that I hadn't done a very good job. And all of a sudden, it was like a a light switch was flipped and I realized like, I was like, oh, like all of the things that they gave me, they gave me because they took pleasure in me, not because they didn't take pleasure in me. It was the complete opposite of what I thought. And it changed my perspective. It changed my heart. It changed my emotions. It changed how I acted after that. Everything changed because I understood that I had actually been in a place of privilege and pleasure, not in a place of being rejected or pushed away. Do you see what I'm getting at? You've probably experienced something similar. Fourth thing that we see in the text about our union with Christ, and this is the last one we're gonna look at, is that our union with Christ means a certain future. It means a guaranteed future, right? When we see this, it says, when Christ who is your life, it's the last verse there, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Or John says it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verse two. He says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but what we know that when, we, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now, I love that because it's a promise, a declaration that we, this will come to pass. 
right? So just to use theological terms, let me introduce them to you if you haven't heard them before, and some of you will be familiar with these maybe, is we use these terms justification, sanctification, and glorification. And justification just means that through Jesus' sacrifice, I can be declared legally right with God, that I can have my sins paid for, the penalty taken away. That's what we mean when we say justification, right? Then we use this term sanctification. What we mean is what we're talking about today, that we can be changed, that, change, that we become more like Jesus with each day. And here's one of the, the things that I thought was so interesting. Sinclair Ferguson said this as well. He said, sanctification, we're all in a different process, right? I mean, we're all like, you're at one place, I'm at another place, and, and she's at another place, and he's at another place. That our sanctification, our becoming more like Jesus, happens over time, gradually, and it happens to all of us at different rates. But this last thing, this is the last term, glorification. Glorification is the guarantee that, that when Christ comes, we will receive glory and we will be glorified, completed, finalized into his image in a way that we do not yet comprehend what it will be like. That's why John says, we do not know yet what we will be. He doesn't mean he, do, he doesn't know if it's gonna happen. He means we can't fully comprehend the beauty of what we've got in our union with Christ that we will be one day glorified in him. And Sinclair Ferguson said about this, I thought it was so interesting. He said, think about this. Your sanctification and my sanctification are all happening at different times and we are in different places. But our glorification is the one thing that will happen to all of us at the exact same moment. I'm not getting there before you and you're not getting there before me. Right? I'm not at some point going to go, sweet, I'm there. I'll see you when you get here. Rather, he says, oh no. For every single one of us, when Jesus comes and he appears and we behold him as he is in all his glory, we will be transformed into that image of glory just as we see him. We will be like him. We will be glorified. All sin put away, all illness, sickness, sadness, sorrow, suffering put away, and now glorified in the Son for the sake of the Father. Oh, what a good day that'll be. What a good day that'll be. And it will come for all of us at the exact same moment. I love that. But here's, here's the thing. He tells us this about changes. You know that through your union with Christ, you have this guarantee. It will come to pass. And when you believe that, it works change in you. Now, perhaps you might be thinking, right? Like, well, what if my response to that is to say, great, if it's guaranteed, then I'll just live however I want now. And then one day that will, that will happen. So awesome, this is a great deal. I can do whatever I want now and then I'll be glorified then. I don't think that's really the response of the heart to this reality when you understand it. Let me use an illustration, right? Students, let's say you're not married yet and I could guarantee you I have looked into the future and I have seen your future spouse. I've seen him. This man or woman is strikingly gorgeous. They are a man or woman of absolute integrity. I mean, they have no flaws in their character. They do what they say they're gonna do. They swear to their own harm. They follow through no matter the cost. They are dependable, they are trustworthy, they are godly, they are wise. By the way, they make your favorite dessert like a master chef. And they give amazing back rubs. All these things are true of the person that you are gonna marry. I have seen it. I can guarantee it, it will happen. What is your response? I'll date as many losers as I can now. Awesome, it's gonna happen. No, you're, don't applaud that. No, your response is break up with the loser that you're dating now. Get rid of that bozo. I'm just kidding. The person you're dating now may be awesome. I don't know, I'm sorry, right? They may be this person. But let, you get my point, right? 
if you knew that this was your guaranteed future, is your response this sweet? Let's do whatever I want now because it's promised to me, it's guaranteed. No, your response is to say, I wanna work every day to become the kind of person that is gonna be a great fit for that person, right? I, I, I want to put, I wanna set my mind on, mind on things above so that like when I meet this person, like we're kind of in this, generally on the same page, right? That's, that's the natural response. That's the right response to that reality. And what God is telling us here is in Jesus, it is guaranteed that you will be glorified because of your union with him. Now, does, does that motivate you for change? I think so. That's the idea, is it tells you this is guaranteed. Now, live in it. Now, walk in it. This is who you will be, right? This is who you will be. So we got a statement about our identity, which is true now, and we got a statement about our future, which is guaranteed then. We're surrounded on all sides. So again, Understanding our union with Christ, just to kind of summarize, understanding our union with Christ is, is the crucial key uh, to unlocking the door of how does change happen? It happens through a worshiping heart. It happens through a heart that worships the right, true object of worship. And when we understand our union with Christ, we begin to shed those old clothes. We begin to shed those old idols. And Jesus sits down on the throne. And when he sits down on the throne, he's heavy. Nothing can move him. Nothing can get him up. He takes control. And that's his ambition for us, that we would, again, Colossians chapter two, verse six, that we would, those who have received him, would what, church? Walk in him, would walk in him. So let's respond in two ways today, shall we? It's good just to respond in the moment when we hear God's truth and not wait, you know, but just to respond in the moment. So we're gonna sing as, as response number one. We're just gonna stand and sing together because as we said, that's how we shape our hearts. Yes, church? So we're gonna shape our hearts by responding and worshiping. Yeah, the band can come up. And then, we're, so we're gonna sing two songs. We save some time for that. And uh, what we wanna do is during that second song, if you know, we'll just have some people up here to pray and we'll just continue to sing as a church. But if you know, like, hey, I'd love to receive some prayer, whether it's because you just have a physical need where you just need God to, to bring a, a touch of healing, come and be prayed for. But maybe in particular, if you know, I need, I need the spirit to move to help me understand my union with Christ more fully. Right? Like I've sat here, I've, I've taken it in in my mind, but I need the spirit to come and move and, and, and just to, to fill me with a deeper knowledge of my union with Christ. We'd love to pray that with you. That's just a great way to respond to God's word. So we'll sing together. Then during that second song, we'll welcome you to come and, uh, and then we'll be dismissed afterwards. Let me pray. In fact, why don't you stand with me and then I'll pray and we'll sing. So Lord, we thank you that we get to gather as a church family and sing and declare your praise and your worth and you're so good. Everything that we've said about our union with you is true. All the privileges and pleasures we get from that, we get because of your worth, not ours. Because of your work, not ours. Because of your power, not ours. And so we wanna respond to that by singing to you now just as a church family, telling you we love and adore you. And we wanna be unified in heart in doing that. We just want all of our hearts unified around as we now do what you just commanded us to do, which is to set our mind on the things above, to look to where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, where our lives are hidden with him in you. Help us to see it now. 
offer you our worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.